0: Show me the way to go home I'm tired and I want to go to bed I had a little drink about an hour ago And it's gone right to my head Wherever I may roam On land or sea or foam, You can always hear me sing this song Show me the way to go home
1: to the virtual pub for some drinks, trivia and social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim and I'm joined by my drinking buddy, Larry. What are we serving today?
0: Hello. Uh, I'm drinking wine uh, from a coffee mug because I don't want anyone to know I'm drinking wine uh-huh. because it's 1920s America and it's prohibition.
1: Yes, we've, um, we've embraced our Um, recurring theme for dry January, we always do something to do with being dry in January. Um, But this will be the booziest version of dry January, I think. We've mentioned prohibition, particularly in the US, so many times throughout our over 90 episodes, and we've never actually kind of explained properly what it is, how it happened, what its legacy was, given a timeline of it, so we're choosing to do one big episode in January. All devoted to prohibition to make sure we all understand what it really is. Mm-hmm. Nothing that... to add there. <laughs> <laughs> good, <laughs> good, chat. good chat. You will you will speak when spoken to. Um, <laughs> I've got to celebrate that. I like that you're hiding your drink in a mug. By the way, I've got um a gin ricky, uh, which is it's basically just gin, lime, and soda. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: But it was popular in the early nineteen hundreds in the U.S. and it remains the official cocktail of Washington, D.C. How is it? Oh, it's nice. I mean, we've all had gin, lime and soda before, haven't we? I just didn't necessarily yeah. know it was called a Gin Ricci. Um Not But the, there's lots of gin-based cocktails throughout Prohibition. Uh, so I thought I'd just go for this one. Okay. Mm. Right, where to start with this subject? Because hmm. there's, um, you know, there's a lot of history that comes before um, the acts themselves. You could think of the history of temperance, um, you know, before then, like with the British Puritans in the 17th century, you could think about the gin craze from the 18th century and all the kind of backlash that came from that, you could um, listen to in our Hogarth episode. You could think of the Methodist reforms um, and other Christian ideals which developed in the 19th century and became popular in the US. Um, I think, really, you look around the 1830s for the, the roots of these evangelical reform movements. In particular, one of the big ones was the Women's Christian Temperance Union. And obviously, they were taking inspiration from things like Methodist reforms, um... But they also took inspiration from Greek philosophy. Now, th- the Greek philosophers do not tend to agree well on anything, but um, <laughs> and particularly when it comes to passions and virtues and temperance and the definition of what that actually is. Uh, they go with Xenophon. Xenophon was this Greek philosopher. He said it was uh, moderation in all things healthful and abstinence from all things harmful. So open to interpretation, obviously some people would say that alcohol isn't harmful if you have it in moderation. But uh, they thought, no, it's harmful, so we shouldn't, we probably shouldn't have it at all. Um, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, though, it wasn't just about alcohol. Um, It was really kind of part of a broader feminist movement, feminist protests. You know, they they had rightfully identified that they have no economic control in their homes. A lot of them were victims of domestic violence, and they put, um, you know, their, their husbands drinking too much as part of that problem. So you can understand why it would be kind of an idea in a movement that begins in, in feminist protests. But they were looking for other kinds of reform as well. Uh, things that led to women's suffrage uh, broadly, things that led to abolition. Um, and, you know, this temperance is initially it's about moderation or voluntary abstinence. It's not about prohibition at this point. Uh, by the way, that there are um, still with, uh, women's Christian temperance unions uh, in existence today. There's one in almost every U.S. state and they're in about 36 other countries around the world. So um, it's still something that, that exists. Uh, like campaigners for suffrage... There's both non-violent and violent protests. And of course, what we want to hear about is the violent ones. So (laughs) have you ever heard? I mean, you may have in your in your research. Have you ever heard of Carrie Nation?
0: I haven't. I didn't even see it in my research.
1: She was sometimes called Hatchet Granny. (laughs) (laughs) And if you do one thing with the rest of your day, please Google an image of Carrie Nation because it is a strong photo. You're going to do it right now, aren't you? I'm
0: doing it right now. I'll tell
1: you about it as you, as you do that. So she believed in violent protest. She would smash up bars with an axe with her hatchet and she would take along a bag of what she called smashings, which were like a bag of rocks and bottles that she would hurl into the windows and she would smash up the bar with her axe. Um, have you found a photo of her?
0: Yeah, she looks a little bit like David Jason. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Wielding an axe.
0: With an axe. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so she was arrested 30 times for what she called hatchetations. She was a wordsmith as well as incredibly violent. <laughs> um, and she kept being released and kept offending. Um, now, you've got to kind of be careful about how you portray her because obviously that is a strong image in itself. On the one hand, though, she was, you know, she was anti-corsets. She thought they were a stupid idea. Agree, unless you're a drag queen. But don't wear them full time because you're going to rearrange your innards. She had degrees (laughs) in philosophy and politics and history. She particularly looked at how Greek philosophy um, uh, inspired U.S. politics, where you can now sort of see where the whole Xenophon thing comes from. Uh, but on the other side, she did say that she was a bulldog running at the feet of Jesus, um, which <laughs> sort of gave me impressions of Sarah Palin. Uh, and <laughs> also that the, the hatchetations were God telling her to do it. So, you know, yeah. she applauded the assassination of President McKinley in 1901 because drinkers got what they deserved. Um, she was a heck of a character. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I hope you've all looked at what she she looks like now, because there's some great headshots. Uh, Henry Ford was also very in favour of um, temperance leading into Prohibition because he thought it would prevent accidents at work. He thought there were too many drunken people having too many drunken accidents in the factory, and it would prevent that. Um, One of the biggest uh, characters, though, who pushed for Prohibition was a guy called Wayne Wheeler. And he was initially an attorney and then later the spokesperson for the Anti-Saloon League. The Anti-Saloon League formed in 1893. And um, although they formed then, they kind of really pushed in the after effects of World War One to go for national prohibition. Because there was a lot of prejudice and suspicion of foreigners as they saw them after World War One. So many reformers used the war to get measures passed, Um, and in fact, they were quite successful at getting states to ban alcohol prior to 1917, and, you know, all the big prohibition uh, pushes. And it was essentially because they were anti-German, and it was quite successful because a lot of the breweries had been set up by Germans. They had German names, and so kind of working on that anti-German sentiment meant they got a lot of traction in those early days. Uh, Prohibition, to be clear, as opposed to temperance, is about total banning nationally and demonstrably less about improving society, (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. particularly regarding things like race and ethnicity, because drunkenness problems are very much othered onto immigrants and working class as they saw it. So you had the Irish who had brought whiskey with them, Italians who brought wine, Germans who brought beer. And people of colour because they didn't even need a reason. Um, One of the other kind of big supporters of um, Prohibition was the KKK. (laughs) (coughs) Obviously. Yeah. I mean, you've always got to think whether you're on the right side of an argument when the KKK is, you know, is standing next to you. Yeah. (laughs) They went around burning down stills and buildings. They whipped people who were. Um, serving booze they had gun battles with bootleggers um, you know they're not just racists uh, they... <laughs> <laughs> they were basically a private American military for moral crusading So anything they saw as being the moral duty of Americans and not necessarily supported by government they would go out and fight for um, I think we all wish we could say that that wasn't the case today but they may have changed their name but we all know it's still very much in practice yep so that side of the argument was the, was called the dry side and then you had the wet side arguing for, for more drinking. I'm not really going to go into the wet side for US because I think it's juicy on the British side. So I'll, I'll we'll do all dry for the US and then we'll get wet when we go to Britain. On the eve of the act itself, um, this is quite brilliant, there were funeral parties on both sides of the argument actually. So mostly in New York... There were these big uh farewell funeral parties where people dressed in black, they had black glasses to drink from, all the decorations were in black, they had funeral dirges. Um, it's all very kind of, you know, you can you can imagine New York um drag queens probably would have organized it. It's got that kind of vibe of everyone's <laughs> coming for a fake funeral party and they're gonna cry and be dramatic. Um you even got souvenir coffins to take away with you. So you could put like the last drink in a little coffin and take it home. (laughs) A
0: little boozy party bag.
1: (laughs) Yeah, which I absolutely love. Um, (laughs) And I think it's a good idea for a Halloween party. So yeah, in New York, it was very much, this is awful, let's mourn it. Uh, They had pro-prohibition funeral parties as well, though. So in Virginia, for example, they were dancing on the grave of alcohol.
0: so Aww. they would
1: bury the alcohol and they would they would <laughs> dance on it they hired mimes to pretend to be drunks and the devil as the entertainment and they had a coffin that was not a little souvenir you know kind of tasteful one theirs was 20 feet long oh <laughs> and gosh. they buried a representation of john barley corn who was like a folk figure that represented beer making. So you may know of Johnny Appleseed as well. He was sort of the folk yeah. hero who planted the first orchards. So John John Barleycorn was the, the beer version of that. They buried him in a 20-foot long coffin. It's all <laughs> very dramatic. <laughs> um, so the act itself. We're in October 1919. It's called the Volstead Act. And To begin with, Woodrow Wilson, who is the president, is really against it. He thinks this is a terrible idea and he vetoes it, even though it's got popularity uh, in, in the rest of his government. But Congress and Senate do pass it and it is put into effect regardless in 1920. It says an act to prohibit intoxicating beverages and to regulate the manufacture, production and sale of high proof spirits for other than beverage purposes and to ensure an ample supply of alcohol and promote its use in scientific research and in the development of fuel, dye and other lawful industries. So there is some nuance to it um, which as we may find out could be taken advantage of in different ways. There was a fine of a thousand dollars and 30 days in prison if you were caught violating the law Um, and to be clear it's not about the consumption of alcohol it's about kind of production and distribution and then it would it would go up to ten thousand dollars and one year in prison for repeat offense the bureau of prohibition and if you remember the smuggling episode this is a very similar story where we said The smuggling kind of prosecutions didn't really happen because there just weren't enough people to work on enforcing the law. Very similar story over here as well. There were only 1,500 people to enforce this law for the whole country. It's a big country. (laughs) So in effect, it wasn't really enforced very much. Bootlegging became very popular as a result. And um, to be honest, people who benefited most were often the police and the politicians as a result of it. It was, um, I mean, it was a really stupid move, <laughs> even before we get into how it played out. You can think ahead and go, this was their fifth largest industry, you know, um, it, something like 40% of the tax was coming in from alcohol sales and industry generally. With that taken away, they had to have something to put in its place um, economically. And so it led to the creation of income tax for them. Um which i'm sure everyone could agree is um you know perhaps necessary but not so fun as <laughs> as drinking and paying your taxes that way <laughs> mm-hmm. um i so say there were there were some ways that uh people could kind of get through it with within those existing industries one such example and i think you're going to talk a bit more about what they did but i know that breweries were allowed to continue producing beer as long as it was under 0.5%, which essentially makes it a soft drink um or they would call near near beer.
0: Mhm. Yeah. Um so yeah, I looked into what the breweries did, near beer being one of them. Um but there was actually a lot of innovation um across America from breweries who were just trying to stay afloat essentially. Um It gave me kind of flashbacks to COVID when I was looking at it, because we saw a lot of that innovation from like distilleries and breweries in the UK. Like the local distillery, the local distillery to me started making hand sanitizer instead of whiskey. And so, yeah, breweries in America did the same during Prohibition. So I just looked at what they made. Um, So I've got a list. Hmm. Uh, Number one on my list is uh, barley malt syrup. Uh, So that ranked quite high on the list of obvious products for struggling breweries. Um, Their best chance at success was to just quickly pivot to a product that used similar ingredients, machinery and processes to what they were used to. Uh, And malt syrup fit the bill. Uh, Many breweries produced malt syrup, including Anheuser-Busch, Schlitz and Miller. Uh, So for anyone wondering what barley malt syrup is exactly, it's a thick, thick unrefined sweetener produced from malted barley which happens to be one of the primary ingredients in beer making Uh, it is also used to make malted milk and it had a market kind of before prohibition from confectioners bakeries and soda shops Uh, but during prohibition malt syrup took on a subversive quality Uh, a lot of it was not designed for malted milkshakes or candy bars it was kind of more sold as a with a bit of a wink to customers who intended to use it for home brewing, uh, and I found a really lovely picture of uh, <laughs> malt syrup being sold in a grocery store back from that era. And it's an it's a big um, aluminium kind of display unit that the malt bricks and stuff would have been put in. And there's an actual guy in an apron winking at you. It's almost like a literal wink to the consumers who know the true purpose. It's not for making malted milk or what mm. have you they, they were making beer i just like how obvious they made it in the adverts Saucy. That winking.
1: <laughs> who doesn't love a subversive syrup <laughs> <laughs> i feel like that would be a good brand um, name subversive syrups.
0: <laughs> subversive syrups moving on to number two obviously brewer's yeast malt syrup alone does not make beer so to corner the market on home brewing breweries were also selling brewer's yeast um Anheuser-Busch packaged its yeast, which it's famously kept alive since the 1880s. They packaged it in five pound cakes. It was wrapped in wax paper and available in grocery stores. Uh, It was specifically formulated to allow homebrewers to make great tasting beer. Uh, So brewers yeast is different from the active dry baker's yeast used to make cakes and bread, uh, although they're both made from the strains of the same fungus, Brewer's yeast contains chromium. Uh, both yeasts create carbon dioxide, but Brewer's yeast also assists in increasing alcohol content as it feeds off the sugar. So, yeah, lots of home baking, home baking, home brewing. <laughs> Thanks to those innovations. Um, next on my list is obviously near Beer, as you said. Um So near Beer was obviously a no-brainer for breweries. Um, For those unfamiliar with the term, it's essentially what we now call non-alcoholic beer or low-alcohol beer. Again, Anheuser-Busch, they've always been adept at marketing the brand and they went all out with their near Beer. um,
1: Do you remember the song? Sorry to interrupt you. I don't know
0: the song, no. It's because I'm
1: running through my head because you said Anheuser-Busch twice now. Down at the Anheuser-Busch, bush, bush.
0: (laughs) I'm going to mention it a lot more, so feel free to sing it. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's, it's going round in my head constantly. I can't remember episode that was from. The old Bull and Bush. Anyway, i will come back to me. Carry on. <laughs> so
0: they went all in uh, with advertising and marketing this brand, because obviously it was legal, it was a near beer. So they created the Bevel Victory Boot, um, which was advertising their Bevel near beer instead of its signature Budweiser American-style lager. Uh, Many breweries already produced near beer before the passage of the 18th Amendment. Uh, Statewide prohibitions existed in three dozen states before the official start of prohibition uh, in January 1920. Uh, Near beer was promoted as a hearty, healthy drink. Uh, Adverts aimed at pregnant uh, women and nursing mothers touted the benefits of a malt in a baby's diet, as well as supporting a mother's milk supply. Um, so understandably Nia Brea production increased during Prohibition and most breweries that remained open produced their own version so Budweiser made Bevo, uh, Pabst Blue Ribbon made Pablo and Schlitz made Famo or Fimo uh, the Renault Brewing Company in Nevada made New Style Lager an optimistically named Nia beer, advertised as the most satisfying drink but ultimately consumers weren't that (laughs) satisfies. although (laughs) although near beers are quite popular today for different types of audiences back in prohibition most americans weren't all that enamored with near beers um so yeah there were other other drinks which we're going to probably talk about in this episode that prevailed Mm. um breweries also made soft drinks such as ginger ale sarsaparilla and fruit flavored sodas Uh, Some breweries were able to develop local followings for those specific soft drinks that they made during um, Prohibition, but most of them abandoned them shortly after. Um, Next on the list, this is where it gets fun. Breweries turned their hand to candy. Uh, It's quite a popular idea for breweries. Quite a few of them produced some sort of sweet treat or confectioner's ingredient, Uh, So, in Milwaukee, you had Blatt's uh, Brewery. They made grape and mint-flavoured chewing gums. Uh, Shell's Brewery in Minnesota began wholesaling candy made by other companies. And Coors became the main supplier for malted milk at the Mars Candy Company and continued to produce malted milk for them until 1957. Uh, One failed product worth mentioning was uh, Schlitz's E-Line Chocolate Bars, Although the chocolate itself was very good, they decided to package it on a machine that used fish oil as a lubricant. Wow.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: so, <laughs> that didn't go very well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Moving on, ceramics. Um, in 1913, Adolf Coors, founder of the Golden Brewery, which is now known as Coors Brewery, mm-hmm. uh, he became president of Herald China and Pottery Company. In Colorado, Uh, when Herald's founder left the community in 1915, Coors fully absorbed operations and renamed the company Coors Porcelain. Statewide prohibition in Colorado began in 1916. Between the decreased demand for beer and the increased demand or need for domestic porcelain labware during World War I, Coors Porcelain was poised to become a large part of the Coors Empire. During Prohibition, it created labware, dinnerware, and hotelware, as well as promotional products such as ashtrays. It became the global leader in the production of porcelain labware in the 1920s. And the company actually lives on today. Uh, It's called Cause Tech, and it continues to produce technical ceramics in a range of industries. Mm. I had no idea. I thought that was very interesting. No,
1: that's an unexpected one, isn't it?
0: Hmm another one back to food ice cream mm-hmm. uh dairy products they were a popular popular category for breweries as obviously they already had equipment for refrigeration freezing pasteurization um unsurprisingly anheuser-busch are in the list again of people who made <laughs> ice cream they just didn't stop uh but i think one of the most popular and most uh, successful ones were youngling they were among uh One of the breweries that were churning out frozen dairy treats solely as their innovative turn. Um, In particular, their ice cream, which began in 1920, it got so popular that they had to expand the ice cream plant a few times by 1931. Uh, First, Youngling purchased additional property in Pottsville, the city of its founding, to enlarge the footprint. Then it established more branches in Allentown and York in Pennsylvania. These expansions also followed the comp- allowed the company. Sorry, these expansion also allowed the company to start processing and distributing milk. The end of prohibition didn't affect their commitment to ice cream, and the company continued operations until 1985. Ooh. Never went back to booze. Um, truck bodies is another one on my list. Uh, as I've mentioned, Anheuser Busch just keep popping up. Um, they were turning their hand to a lot of different things. In fact, they produced more than 25 alternative products during Prohibition. Um, Some of those products, new products, particularly ice cream, needed a new form of transportation. So another string to their bow, they developed a vehicle department and started making refrigerated truck bodies and ice cream cabinets. Um, It's technology called automatic brine circulation, Uh, It became very popular with dairymen, butchers, and green but it was later supplanted by dry ice and electric refrigeration. Um, I feel like automatic
1: brine circulation is whatever. What what happens every time (laughs) you get your hands in a jar of gherkins?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I might be doing it right now. (laughs) Uh, Another one on the list, artificial ice. Ice cream wasn't the only frozen product that helped breweries keep the lights on. Um, Rhode Island's narrow—I have to slow down when I say this—Narragansett. No. <laughs> God! Yeah, Rhode Island's Narragansett Brewery. Why can't I say Narragansett? Narragansett Brewery. Uh, it was the largest brewery in New England on the eve of prohibition. And its success rested partially on the pleasant tasting water that they got from the nearby reservoir. Uh, they used this water to make more than just beer. Starting in 1910, Narragansett's holdings included an artificial ice plant and cold storage. It delivered 25 tonnes of ice to more than 1,500 customers, um, Artificial ice during that time was still relatively new. Um, Most Americans relied heavily on naturally harvested ice or they just simply went without. Uh, Once Prohibition started, Narragansett began making medical tonics and soft drinks, but its ice production was uh, the steady capital for them. I've got two more left. Mm -hmm. They're getting weirder. Frozen eggs is the next one.
1: (laughs) As in, like, Fertility treatment clinics?
0: Uh, nope. Actual eggs from chickens that one would eat if right. you like eaten eggs. Yeah. Um, guess who was at it? Anheuser Busch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they started producing 30 pound canisters of frozen egg products in um, either a golden select or a special white variety. Uh, The processes for breaking, separating and freezing eggs was only 30 years old when they added this product to its arsenal. As with many of these alternative products, uh, frozen eggs were marketed for commercial consumers. Um, They're still used to this day, actually, in the baking industry, in large scale restaurants, etc., etc. So Anheuser-Busch's version showed up in adverts and company product lines until the 1950s. Last on the list is cheese, processed cheese. Um, One of the most innovative dairy products from breweries was um, Pabst et cheese. So Pabst Brewing Company, um, off of Blue Ribbon fame, they started making their own cheese. They called the Pabst et cheese. Uh, They bought a local dairy at the start of Prohibition and started making a processed cheese that could be marketed as easily digestible, healthy and delicious. Uh, So what they created was a whey-based product that was available in cheddar, swish, swish, (laughs) Swiss, cheddar, swiss and pimento. They sold it as both blocks and spreads Uh, and they sold more than eight million pounds of it during Prohibition. It did very, very well.
1: So is what you're saying, that we've got prohibition to blame for America's dreadful cheese.
0: <laughs> well, it, mm, kind of, yeah, probably.
1: <laughs> the legacy of prohibition continues to worsen.
0: <laughs> well, it was interesting, actually, because at the time, processed cheese was touted and favoured as a healthy alternative to natural cheese. So, yeah, they were pushing people towards processed cheese. Um, So it was Velveeta who created the market standard in 1918. Uh, Kraft Foods later acquired Velveeta and they actually felt so threatened by this Pabstet product that they sued them for infringement in 1924 and they won. Uh, But instead of forcing the brewery to completely stop making cheese, uh, they allowed them to continue making the product uh, so long as the brewery paid a 25 cent royalty to them for every £100 of cheese that they produced. Um, after Prohibition ended, the brewery sold its cheese operations to Craft and returned to making Blue Ribbon beer. So although it was short-lived, it has lived on as one of the most iconic examples of the innovation during Prohibition. And that ends my section on breweries. Mm. Quite interesting, I thought. Lots of different things they turned their hands to.
1: I've got a sort of different pathway to take you down. Instead mm-hmm. of that kind of adaptation of, you know, sort of uh, legal solutions away from booze. I want to look more at the loopholes. So yeah, how did <laughs> people continue to drink despite the law? Um, so, I mean, it's it's always worth uh, looking for loopholes in the law. Uh, as I said, it was illegal to actually make and sell and distribute it, not necessarily to consume it. Um, one of the Biggest producers in the wake of this legally were doctors <laughs> because you could still consume alcohol if you had a medical reason for it, if you could get a prescription. We've mentioned this before when we talked about Churchill. Churchill, when he went to the US, because he drank like a pint of champagne every day, uh, he went <laughs> and got a doctor's note saying he had to have the booze and so they let him. But actually, It was much more common than that. You know, that that example makes it sound like it was only a few elite people. Six million prescriptions for medical use of alcohol uh, (laughs) were written during this time. So that meant that uh, one of the biggest producers of alcohol during Prohibition was actually uh, the medical industry. (laughs) Brilliant. second to that was um, vast increases in communal wine
0: Mm. and the like. (laughs)
1: We've done an episode on uh, communion wine as well. Um, And this is where it came into it saying there was a huge increase in the registration of um, synagogues and churches and rabbis who could administer the sacrament. Basically, anyone would get registered and then their friends and family would come around and they'd be like, Yeah, let's do some sacrament. Um, And they'd all get on the communal wine. (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, the thing is, though, rich people it really didn't like this whole process didn't really touch them didn't bother them they were allowed to own a private supply anyway ahead as long as they bought it ahead of time so most wealthy people had these big sellers they filled them up before prohibition kicked in and then they sort of had a steady supply Uh, warren g harding who is the 29th president of the us he was a massive drinker um, in the white house during this time they were storing loads of alcohol at the White House and they also had an in-house bar at the Senate Library. There was like this curtain at the back of the Senate Library and then there was just a bar behind it. Um, so as ever, they were just massive hypocrites. <laughs> they were like, here's a law for everyone else, but not for us because we are, we are stocking.
0: I'm getting so many COVID flashbacks. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah, exactly. History really does repeat itself. Um. Wealthy people were protected anyway. You know, they weren't going to be subject to the law in any way. They weren't going to be prosecuted. It was only the poor people that were really victimized. When you look at the people who went to court, it would have been sort of home brewers. You know, I read, a, I looked at a court record, which was just like a single mother of two who'd had a gin at home or something. And you think, yeah, yeah. those are the people we should be prosecuting. Absolutely. Also, if you were going after illegally produced alcohol, so not kind of the clean stuff coming from the lab and you, that you would get from the doctor or the pharmacy, if you were rich, you could afford that safer alcohol, um, which, which is just the same as any kind of like drug industry now, right? The rich people can afford the safe stuff, and it's the poor people who get the stuff that's been kind of messed with. Um, and that means that they were much more, the poor people were much more likely to get ill from drinking illicit alcohol. Bathtub gin, we'll, we've heard of before as a term, and we've said it wasn't made in a bath. You know, that's that's silly. That's what we associate it with. We go, oh, it's people making alcohol in a bath. No, this was when, this was mostly for the middle classes. So these are the people who were going to the chemist or the doctor, for example, and buying safe alcohol, and then they would go home and mix it with water from the bath tap. That's where we get mm-hmm. the bathtub part of it. From. They mix water from the bathtub. Um And then add their own flavours, so one of the most popular would be a, a gin-flavoured cordial. So a lot of people would kind of put all the flavours of that in and you can mix your own at home. They actually didn't use the term bathtub gin at the time, that that term came much later referring back to it. They called it synthetic gin, Um, but that was popular amongst the middle classes. And then you get to the sort of the poorer people, the homebrewers, the moonshine makers. And they were the ones who were really being prosecuted it was these these small time makers not even the middle classes it's worse than that though um it's not just that they were kind of making substandard alcohol and government were prosecuting them the government also added specifically toxic poisonous chemicals to these things that were being distributed they were sort of marking them as poison thinking People won't want to drink it. Like it will stop them from doing from uh, drinking illicitly. If there are some well-known poisoning cases from doing this, they obviously don't understand what well, either morality or psychology. Because uh, that that <laughs> didn't help. People went blind. People died. Um, it was they would commonly add things like formaldehyde, turpentine, arsenic, lead. Some some of the poisoning was accidental some was through willful neglect but yeah a few were deliberately uh poisoned to try and get the poor to stop drinking them uh, it was even reported in the new york times at the time um that the government was doing this but they could get away with it because of who they are oh. <laughs> um i think you look into the next example i have of a, of a loophole uh, would you want to tell us about wine bricks
0: i do yes um so obviously when prohibition went into effect American vineyard owners faced a bit of a dilemma. Do we tear up the vines and start planting something else? Or do we kind of just hope that the ban on bows isn't going to last very long and sit it out? Um, The problem was, is that if they tore up all the vines uh, in search of other profits, only to see prohibition overturned a few years later, it could still take up to kind of a decade for any of those replanted vines to start producing the kind of quality grapes that they really needed to make the wine that they were producing. Um, But some vineyard owners couldn't risk it, and as soon as prohibition was passed, they tore up the vineyards, planted orchards, um, and that was that. But the winemakers who decided instead to stick it out came up with an ingenious way to sell their grapes and still legally kind of make wine (laughs) and become rich in the process. So they used the loophole. Um, So, the the law stipulated that grapes could be grown, and if only those grapes were used for non-alcoholic consumption, if it was determined that somebody instead used those grapes to make booze, and the vineyard owner who'd sold that person the grapes was aware of it, they'd both be in trouble and they could be jailed. However, if the grape grower gave clear warning that the grapes were not to be used for the creation of alcohol, And those grapes passed through enough hands so that even if the end result was wine, the grape grower wouldn't kind of know the bootlegger's intentions, so he'd be in the clear. Uh, The Volstead Act also stipulated that the grape growers themselves could make juice and juice concentrate only if those products were used for non-alcoholic consumption. So plenty of loopholes there. They could still make non-alcoholic wine, And that wine could theoretically be turned into alcohol by consumers as long as they give clear warning warning not to do it. Uh, So with those loopholes in place, wine bricks were created. (laughs) Um, So, A wine brick is a brick of concentrated grape juice that was completely legal to produce. Uh, Consumers would then dissolve that wine brick in water and ferment it in order to make their own wine at home. Uh, But not every consumer knew how to make wine, so how did they know what to do? Uh, The instructions were actually printed directly on the packaging. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But the instructions were masked as a warning of what not to do with the product. So it's an ingenious way to get around the law. Um, If you were to buy one of these bricks on the package, there'd be a note explaining how to dissolve the concentrate safely in a gallon of water then right below it, the note would continue with a warning instructing you that you should absolutely not leave that jug in the cool cupboard for 21 days (laughs) or it would turn to wine. (laughs) So, yeah, that warning was your key to making wine at home. Uh, And thanks to loopholes in the legalisation, consuming 200 gallons of this homemade wine for your personal use was completely legit. Um, It just couldn't leave your home. Uh, So something wine brick packages were also careful to remind consumers. Besides the warning, uh, wine brick makers such as Vino Sano were very open about what they knew their product was to be used for. They even include the flavours on the packaging such as Burgundy, Claret and (laughs) (laughs) Riesling. But of course they did mention these are flavours that could happen if you were to mistakenly leave the juice to ferment.
1: It's my days. it's my favorite <laughs> uh, loophole for the whole of the prohibition because I feel like they were the only people that understood psychology. <laughs> like if we print set <laughs> of instructions telling people not to do something, they will absolutely do it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, the result of it, I mean, so many people made so much money from it because um, the demand for grapes and the grape kind of concentrate products and the bricks it didn't fall when prohibition hit; it rose. Um, but because of a lot of the vineyard owners had kind of bottled it per se and pulled up all the vineyards and planted something else, so there was more demand but actually less supply. Um, so those winemakers, you know, that <laughs> stuck by it. Um, the price increase is insane. I think the price per ton. It says here by nineteen twenty four, the price per ton was a shock in three hundred and seventy five dollars which is a 3,847% increase from the pre-prohibition price tag of $9.50. Mm-hmm. So as the actual wineries themselves were going bankrupt, um, the, uh, the growers were planting new vineyards. They actually doubled California's acreage between 1919 and 1926. So they were the big winners. Mm. Mm, great loophole.
1: So I, I think um, you can't talk about Prohibition without conjuring up images of speakeasies, about people drinking in secret. It's probably one of the bigger parts of the legacy of Prohibitions um, that we still see in kind of overpriced cocktail bars in cities uh, today, behind fridges, etc, etc. But it, and... It it didn't start in that kind of glamorous way though. They were very grotty. The first speakeasies, you know, they were just kind of like makeshift dive bar type experiences. I blame The Great Gatsby as well on this kind of idea of prohibition parties being so fabulous um it's it's often misrepresented in immersive experiences and watch-alongs and the Baz Luhrmann film and things like that actually in the book there's, there's one big party and then the rest of it is pretty much about how grotty he was and there's like a couple of quite grotty gatherings and he's not a good man and you know it's not mm-hmm. it's not about the, the fabulosity that we think it is anyway so there's I think there's two quite different approaches to how um people address the issues of prohibition in in the south of us it was very much open violence <laughs> that was that was their choice Bootlegging, open violence uh, in the north it's all a bit more subtle it's more underground so that's where we see the speakeasies uh take off um so the funny thing though is and this is the effect of prohibition right the effects of you must not gather and drink in New York in 1922, there were 5,000 speakeasies, so that's two years into uh prohibition. In 1927, there were 30,000 speakeasies, mm-hmm. yeah. which is twice as many as before prohibition. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's funny as well because I think another image we have is that they're all very secretive you know, it's hidden rooms, it's tables that somehow flip underground and things like that but in the early days of the speakeasies it was they just fought back there wasn't any hiding it was just Mm -hmm. if someone came in to inspect as police or whatever they just throw mostly kitchen items from the list I've seen mostly kitchen items at the police and tell them to go and you know as I said it wasn't they didn't have like huge um numbers to Mm -hmm. kind of um to enforce it. And in addition, particularly in New York and Chicago, the police were mostly Irish immigrants who, <laughs> without, without kind of national stereotyping, but it's true, they didn't really want to support it. So mm-hmm. instead of trying to enforce it and get like rolling pins thrown at them, uh, I don't know why you've got a rolling pin in a bar, but you know, they would <laughs> uh, just demand that the drinks be handed over instead and then they would drink it or, you know, they'd kind of take some money. Um, and continue to let it run really so they could come back and do it again in fact there's a there's a funny story where one of the policemen um (laughs) reports a bar and like gets them told off and fined because they didn't have anything left in stock (laughs) (laughs) so he used the punishment of them supplying alcohol because they hadn't supplied any alcohol for him to take advantage of (laughs) very often they didn't have any alcohol in though a lot of the speakeasies they'd have like a byob setup so you would go in you'd ask for the setup and you'd get like all the extras you know mixers and ice and a glass and whatever else uh that was quite expensive to do though it uh, the average was about half a day's wage so you were really you know coming for the socializing and the experience, which is the reason a lot of people go to the pub. It's not because they need alcohol. People are bringing alcohol that they have. They're coming because mm-hmm. they miss the camaraderie and the socialising, and they're paying a lot of money just to get that, mm-hmm. um, yeah. which kind of makes me a bit sad. But, uh, yeah, that's that, That's kind of my, uh, my look at speakeasies from this period. Did you have anything else you, you wanted to add about speakeasies?
0: Yeah, I think I, I just... I I looked into a bit more of like the glamorous sides of it. Like obviously they did start out as kind of dingy back rooms and basements Mm -hmm. and rooms inside apartments, but you know, they, they did become more and more prevalent and established and they did become fancy clubs with jazz bands and ballroom dance floors. And they were very glamorous. Um, but still there's that underlying kind of organized crime (laughs) everywhere. Um, when they realised how popular they were, organised criminals obviously quickly seized on the opportunity to exploit this new criminal racket of speakeasies and clubs. Um, and obviously it's the first time that men and women were allowed to drink together as well, because prior to prohibition it was just men who would, would go to the bars Um Al Capone, leader of the Chicago Outfit, um, apparently made an estimated $60 million a year supplying illegal beer and hard liquor to thousands of speakeasies that he controlled in the late 1920s. So, like you say, um, although it was all underground and secret, it was enormous. <laughs> um as you mentioned, the police, um, as well as them just wanting to partake, a lot of it was the fact that they were quite low paid as well. So they would quite happily take money in order to kind of look the other way, enjoy a drink or sometimes even tip um, speakeasy owners off about any planned raids by prohibition agents. Um <clears throat> Bootleggers who supplied the private bars and speakeasies would often add water to their whiskey gin and other liquors to sell larger quantities. Uh, Others resorted to selling still-produced moonshine or industrial alcohol. Uh, Some would also sell kind of wood or grain alcohol, even poisonous chemicals such as carbolic acid. Uh, The bad stuff such as smoke, which is made of pure wood alcohol, uh, often killed thousands of drinkers as well so it wasn't just the, the home brewers that were <laughs> killing themselves it was in the speakeasies as well unfortunately they were drinking the bad stuff um to hide the taste of poorly made whiskey and the bathtub gin that you've already mentioned uh speakeasies would often combine alcohol with ginger ale coca-cola sugar mint lemon fruit juice and other flavorings promoting the enduring mixed drink or as we know cocktails it's like you say it all sounds so glamorous when you see it in the in the kind of film world and it's all romanticized but it's not the alcohol was so bad you had to kind of mix it with stuff it wasn't like the delicious cocktails that you get in these kind of prohibition themed clubs now Mm. (laughs) um so a lot of them, you, you mentioned about how the federal agents and the police would kind of get annoyed if um, there wasn't booze there to be drunk or enjoyed. But there were times, where obviously, at the later stages when there were like 30,000 speakeasies in New York that they were having to crack down a little bit on them. So the owners had to get a little bit cleverer about how, they, how they'd hide it, essentially. Um, And there was a great one that I'd found at the 21 Club on West 52nd. The owners had an architect build a custom camouflage door. Uh, They also had a secret wine cellar behind a false wall. And my favourite one is they had a bar that, with the push of a button, would drop the liquor bottles down a chute to crash and drain into the cellar. So it was like it wasn't there. (laughs) i love the idea of like the feds turning up at the door they just push this button and all the booze is just gone
1: (laughs) (laughs) oh that hurts me
0: (laughs) (laughs) um one other thing that i looked at um was obviously i've mentioned about a lot of the owners and the gangsters and the organized crime there's a lot of men involved and i did mention that the women were for the first time invited into these bars um so i started looking at kind of the, the women who kind of were iconic during the speakeasy era. And there were three that I found in particular that dominated the New York nightlife. Um, so I want to talk about those. Uh, the first one is a lady called Texas Gwynon. Have you heard of her? No. She's got a very long name. Mary Louise Cecilia Texas Gwynon. <laughs> Rolls off the tongue. mm mm-hmm. Uh, so she was born in Texas in 1884. She was actually the first female Western movie star. She was a gunslinging, bareback riding cowgirl in three dozen silent films in Hollywood. She was great already. Um, but during Prohibition, uh, a New York show producer uh, introduced her to Larry Fay, a notorious rum runner. She became the hostess and mistress of ceremonies at his club, the Fay L. Fay Club. It's one of the famed illegal speakeasies in New York, one of the big ones. It was on 46th Street near Broadway, and it was open from midnight to 5am. It stood at the top of some stairs leading to a door with a peephole, and inside the silk-walled club seated about 80 people with a small stage for chorus girls. Uh, so at the El Texas, uh, she originated a live bantering routine with patrons, uh, she'd either stand or sit in the middle of the club, and she'd greet the customers with some of her infamous lines, which were "Hello, suckers," and she'd lead everyone in a song. She'd promise the crowd a fighter a night or your money back. She'd often say, "You may be all the world to your mother, but to me, you're just a cover charge." She just sounded really sassy. <laughs> I'm she, already. I'm she, going um, to the
1: pub tonight. I'm the first thing I'm going to do when I walk in is go, "Hello, suckers!" Really <laughs> loud to everyone in there. No matter who they are.
0: just tell them you're just a cover charge to me
1: (laughs) they know that Um, they know that already
0: (laughs) she referred to rich guys as butter and egg men uh her guests included celebrities of the day uh babe ruth charles chaplin rudolph valentino gloria swanson england's lord Mountbatten, and edward prince of wales plus various gangsters Uh, Apparently, once during a raid, she's said to have had the Prince of Wales, who was later King Edward VIII, um, don an apron and cook some eggs to pose as an innocent employee to prevent his arrest. (laughs) I can leave that. (laughs) After authorities raided and closed the El Fay, she teamed up with um, Faye and opened her own club, the Texas Gwynedd Club on West 48th Street. Uh, and when police closed that one down, they went back to the old location of the El <laughs> Um In 1925, she produced and starred in a vaudeville act, Texas and her mob. Uh, she'd left Faye with the aid of another mobster, uh, Oni Madden, who convinced Faye to let her be. And she opened her own place, Texas Gwynnans 300 Club, on West 54th Street. She was arrested in 1927 at said club, on suspicion of a Volstead violation. Uh, She was taken to the police station where she serenaded the police, prohibition agents and reporters. (laughs) At the trial, she insisted she was only a hostess and the jury found her not guilty. In 1933, months before her death, she was in a movie, uh, Broadway Through the Keyhole, in which the director showcased her bantering to customers as she did in her speakeasy days and she delivered her Hello Suckers line uh, she took a performing act, Too Hot for Paris, on a national tour to record crowds. But on November the 4th, while well backstage, uh, she fell ill and died the next day whilst ongoing surgery. Uh, exactly one month before prohibition ended. Oh, and it said got that 12,000 people attended her funeral in New York.
1: Wow. What a legacy.
0: Yeah. What a legacy. Mm. Uh, my next queen of speakeasies is Helen Morgan. She was born in Canada in 1900 and started her singing career at age 12. Uh, she was so small that she had to sit on a piano to be seen by the audience. <laughs> uh, at 18, she was crowned Miss Illinois and won $1,500 in a second booty contest in Canada and moved to New York. She's she
1: playing Monopoly? <laughs> is, is Monopoly based on her lie? <laughs> it might have
0: been. <laughs> oh, Hang on. Oh,
1: she's come apart. Hang on.
0: Lost my shit at the mention of Monopoly. <laughs> Everything went wrong. Um, so she worked as a singer in speakeasies during Prohibition. First in Chicago. Uh, she made her breakthrough in 1924 in New York when a show producer, Billy Rose... Uh, she, he Sorry, had her... I've got to get the door. Oh. Pause. <laughs> no worries.
1: Keep rolling, but do pause the recording. <laughs> Uh, Apologies, I just got a delivery, an illicit delivery of booze.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Does it tell you how to not use it? No, it
1: says open and drink. (laughs) It doesn't say don't do that. What
0: a time for your life. (laughs) Great timing. Okay, Um, I'll crack on. Uh, Working as a singer in speakeasies during Prohibition, first in Chicago... Uh, she made her breakthrough in 1924 in New York when show producer Billy Rose had her headline in his classy speakeasy, The Backstage Club. Uh, she soon became famous for sitting on top of the piano while singing torch songs about sad romances with men. Uh, she was cast in revues on Broadway and in one, Americana, from 1926 to 1927, she sang the torchy Nobody Wants Me perched on a piano in an orchestra pit. This was then followed by a huge break where she won the part of Julie in the debut on Broadway of the musical Showboat in 1927. Uh, so at night after her Broadway shows, she did continue to moonlight as a singer in the Speakeasies, uh, where she was a known draw. In one, the Chez Morgan, she fronted for a bootlegger in 1927. She was arrested in a raid, but the charges were dropped uh, she opened her own speakeasy that year at the 54th Street Club, but that was soon padlocked and closed. In 1928, while at a new club, Helen Morgan's Summer House, that's very quaint, uh, another arrest read, led to a trial, but the jury acquitted her. I just love how all this is going on whilst she's still kind of got a very successful Broadway career. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so after Prohibition ended in 1933, her career endured uh, with performances on the national network radio shows, starring roles in movies, um, a full movie sound version of Showboat. Um, but unfortunately, behind the scenes, she battled with alcohol. And in 1941, whilst on stage in Chicago, um, she collapsed and later passed away of liver and kidney ailments. Age 41. What a bloody life. Mm. My last mm-hmm. queen of the speakeasies is Belle Livingstone. She was born in rural Kansas sometime in 1875. Uh, she was actually found abandoned whilst an infant. She was called Isabel Graham. Uh, she moved in with her foster parents to Chicago in the Sorry, 1890s when her father opposed her joining a theatre company. She proposed marriage to a paint salesman that she'd just met and ran away. Uh, She adopted Belle Livingstone as a stage name. Uh, While in a show in New York, a publicist let it be known that Belle's measurements matched those of the Gibson girl, which is a pin-up drawing idolized in the 1890s. Her photograph was published Wright, as the ideal woman. Uh, A New York writer said she had poetic legs. Uh, She performed in a Broadway show that then travelled to London in the early 1900s. Uh, where she still just kept getting attention for her hourglass curves. Uh journalists called her the most dangerous woman in Europe. <laughs> a self-described bohemian, she claimed that she'd had many affairs with prominent European men. She married three more times, uh, obviously sacked off the painter, being the most dangerous woman in the world. Uh, she married an Italian count, an English engineer and a wealthy Cleveland man. Uh, in 1927, at age 52, after a long, comfortable life in Paris, she returned to New York. It was the Prohibition era. Uh, friends took her to a speakeasy hosted by Texas, our friend mm-hmm. off of two, two minutes ago. <laughs> uh, Bell hatched an idea for a super speakeasy uh, for New York's upper crust with a $200 annual membership. An investor, Franklin Burwin, financed it. Uh, she, she secured a house on East 52nd Street. It was her first speakeasy in Easy in Manhattan. She uh, invited Texas Gwinnon over and they became very close friends. Uh, but unfortunately, she couldn't meet the bills and it folded. It was too grand. But that didn't stop her. In 1929, she moved to 384 Park Avenue to start the Silver Room. Uh, But that one didn't last. (laughs) Federal agents raided that one and closed it down. So she gave it one last shot. Uh, The third and finest club was a five story house on 58th Street. This time she'd asked gangster and rival speakeasy owner, Oni Madden, if it was okay with him. Uh, And according to her autobiography, he said, lady, go as far as you like. Uh, So she did. She dubbed her speakeasy the 5th 8th Street Country Club. Uh, Her pre-screened members included celebrities, near celebrities social registries and financial barons. It had vaulted Florentine ceilings, Italian marble floors, an indoor miniature golf range, a brook uh, brook stocked with goldfish, rooms with ping-pong tables and backgammon games, a lounge with a long wooden bar... um, it had an oriental-themed room full of large paintings in which guests were asked to take off their shoes to enter. It was very louche. Uh, she sent out invitations for the opening night uh, in October, 20th, October 25th, 1930. Uh, some surprised guests rocked up. The Archduke Leopold from L- Russia, the Duke of Manchester from England, and John D. Rockefeller. Others were not invited but came anyway. Um, a staffer ran to inform her that Chicago mob boss Al Capone was sitting in the monkey room with a few others. Uh, she quipped to Capone, we don't pass anyone who isn't right. And he replied, at least we're not Federals. Uh, so she let him stay. <laughs> uh, she sent a cheque to his table for $1,000 just to see what would happen. <laughs> uh, the The bill was fully paid with a $100 tip for the waiter. Uh, the opening made her an absolute bundle, and the reporter for the Evening World wrote, Can it be that Bell is going to push Texas going in and out of the spotlight? Uh, but within weeks, unfortunately, she was raided once again. Uh, she famously tried to escape arrest by wearing red silk pyjamas. Uh, nabbed and charged with the Volstead violations, she kept the country club open until 1931 January. Uh, when a judge sentenced her to 30 days in New York's Harlem Jail. Once she was out, she used her considerable earnings to open speakeasies in Nevada, California and Texas. Uh, but she struggled to beat the locals at the game. In 1933, whilst back in New York, she learned of Texas Quinan's death and helped prepare her friend's body for the funeral. As for her own remains, uh, she arranged for a monument in a graveyard in France with the epitaph: "This is the only stone I have left unturned." She died in 1957, aged 82. What a queen. That is
1: a great epitaph. Yes, steal that. Great.
0: Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. <three laughs> Not the actual queens. gravestone.
1: The, the <laughs> 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 the oh, words. right, right, right. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah so
0: that was that that's the the wormhole i went down mm-hmm. when i was looking
1: at Hmm. um you mentioned that it was said that she was the perfect woman um who's to me who's well this is what i was going to ask who's your perfect woman i am <laughs> you are your own perfect woman
0: uh-huh i'm the most dangerous woman in wales
1: <laughs> <laughs> that i agree to how many qualms with that all right. And I wear silk um, pyjamas. <laughs> <laughs> and you've been arrested in them. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, I'm going to... So I'm going to talk about some of the smugglers then. Um, okay. And to continue down the, the crime route. I'm actually going to start with one whose behaviour is perhaps not what we might imagine of a typical smuggler. He's called Roy Olmsted. And he was one of the most successful and best known bootleggers in the Pacific Northwest region, um, which is different because we hear a lot of stories from New York and Chicago. We hear a lot of stories from down south. So this is a different area that we don't hear too much from. And I think this is probably why. So he was a former lieutenant in the Seattle Police Department. He began smuggling alcohol from Canada while he was still working on the force um uh, obviously he lost his job in law enforcement when he was arrested for that crime um and he turned to illegally importing and distributing alcohol as a full-time and profitable occupation uh he was eventually found out through wiretaps of his phone uh, when they found enough evidence to um, arrest and prosecute him uh, despite the fact that they put in an appeal and it went through to the supreme court's regarding the legality of the wiretap. Um, But uh, no, he did not get away with it. So he ran his illegal operations very much like a business, and he became one of the largest employers in Puget Sound, uh, which is the sort of Seattle area. He was known on the West Coast as the good bootlegger. (laughs) Um, He did not engage in um, diluting contraband with water or toxic chemicals or anything to increase profits he sold only bonded liquor imported from canada um he you know for a lot of smugglers as well they had multiple areas of their business uh, that were you know also illegal like prostitution and gambling and gun running and narcotics but Imstead didn't do any of those and so a lot of people don't really think of him as a criminal even though he broke the law but he kind of very intentionally didn't do any of that other stuff. And even despite the risks involved in being a rum runner, uh, he didn't allow his employees to carry firearms. He would tell his men instead that he'd rather lose a shipment of liquor than a life. So a very different sort of smuggler than what we're (laughs) used to hearing about from this time and from gangster movies. The
0: the jolly smuggler.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um... So he had a four-year prison sentence uh, at uh, McNeil Island Correctional Institute. Uh, He was released in 1931, and uh, in the Seattle reports, it said he got the usual time off for good behaviour, but aside from that, he served his full term plus 30 days for the $8,000 fine. He moved back to Seattle to be with his wife and daughter, where he worked as an insecticides salesman and fumigator. In 1935, so four years later, President Franklin D. Roosevelt granted him a full presidential pardon. So besides restoring his constitutional rights, it also remitted $100,000 the IRS had claimed he owed in unpaid liquor taxes. While he was in prison, he became a Christian science practitioner and a carpenter. <laughs> um and he began working with prison inmates in the Puget Sound area on anti-alcoholism agendas. He was an active member of the community for his remaining years. He taught at Sunday school. He visited prisoners in the jail every Monday morning. Um, and he died at the age of
0: 79.
1: Hmm. So, yeah, quite interesting, interesting, different sort of story from that time. Uh, another famous bootlegger was George Remus and his story is equally interesting perhaps not such a nice man he um was he he basically um bought distilleries when prohibition came in uh, because he he saw kind of where it was going where the loopholes would be he bought distilleries and set up a drugs company which meant that he was able to legally produce um alcohol for his own drugs company to then be distributed to pharmacies but rather than just accept that <laughs> rather than being like i just make money by supplying pharmacies when he put his shipment out he hijacked his own supply <laughs> so he would send people out to um intercept the shipments that he was making himself um yeah and then and then kind of bootleg it and sell it on so it was kind of like he was selling it twice double
0: money yeah yeah
1: um He was found out and arrested (laughs) for doing this (laughs) while he was in prison for this. His wife left him for a policeman and she took she took all of his money, all of his all of his belongings and everything, emptied the property. He came out, discovered that she'd done this, that uh, she'd taken everything. And on the day that they were finalizing the divorce, uh, he saw her getting into a car with, I think it was um, with her kind of her cop boyfriend, and he got in a car behind her, ran her off the road, and then shot her dead.
0: Whoa. All right. Yeah.
1: He, sure. he was rearrested. He went to court, and despite everyone seeing it, and despite him admitting what had happened, he pleaded insanity to it and was let off. Sure.
0: Makes total sense.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there we go. Uh another interesting legacy I think from the uh the smuggling and the rum running is that stock car racing, which is popular in south of the US. Is probably inspired by that from the booze running that would happen between mexico and the south of the us so people would drive their cars very fast over dirt tracks and stuff to uh, mm-hmm. uh try and get the booze there and that's possibly where the whole stock car racing in the south originated as being a popular pastime. Hmm.
0: uh
1: investigators of speakeasies i think the most famous one is isidor or izzy izzy einstein Uh, And he had a partner called Mo Smith. They were US federal police officers. They were part of the Prohibition Unit that I mentioned was vastly under-resourced. And they achieved the most arrests and convictions during the first years of Prohibition. So the 20s to 25. They were known for their success in shutting down these illegal speakeasies and for using disguises in their work. Uh, they would appear as streetcar conductors, grave diggers, fishermen, icemen, opera singers. <laughs> the people didn't think that they were a threat in any way. They were quite rotund and friendly looking. Um, they didn't have weapons or, or or anything like that. Several times in fact, Izzy Einstein w- w- went to a bar and they said, who are you? And he said, I'm a prohibition agent. And they would just laugh and let him in. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Brilliant. So Izzy Einstein famously boasted that he could find liquor in any city in under 30 minutes. In Chicago, he did it in 21 minutes. In, (laughs) In Atlanta, he did it in 17. In Pittsburgh, he did it in 11. But the best one of all was New Orleans when he got out of the airport and got into a taxi to. Drive into the city, he said, Do you know where I can get a drink to the taxi driver? And he was handed one. So,
0: <laughs> oh, yes,
1: 35 seconds was the record in New Orleans. Just <laughs> going they, straight
0: on my holiday list.
1: Yep, yeah, they made f- just under 5,000 arrests uh, during that time, and then in late 1925, despite all that success, Izzy and Mo were laid off in a reorganisation of the Bureau of Enforcement. Um, So, and, you know, it's thought it was probably because they were bringing too much attention to it, because they were kind of so successful and funny, I guess, at it. (laughs) After that, Izzy Einstein kind of really looked into the effects of Prohibition and what a disaster it had been. So he started to realise that really, you know, drinking and related crime, as well as cirrhosis and related diseases, was up in many states. He'd been around, he'd seen it all. It wasn't enforced properly, it was expensive, um, because it did away with things like closing hours and alcohol content, it just made all the practices much, much worse. So he went from being a very successful enforcer of the law in the first half of Prohibition to going, this is absolute nonsense in the second half. Uh, You mentioned Al Capone, Uh, Uh obviously. There was a a rise in Gangsters and Mafia a lot at this time. Al Capone, he was, well, he's kind of known to a lot of people as Scarface, I think, because of the the film. But actually, he didn't like that as a nickname. It wasn't one he used. He went by Snorky.
0: Hmm. Snorky. (laughs) Snorky. right, sure. (laughs) Which is
1: kind of distinctly more cute than Scarface he really embraced celebrity which is pretty much how he got away with everything um Mm -hmm. you know even though he was a criminal he was very sort of open about supporting communities and being popular and you know doing all this sort of stuff where he had plausible deniability for everything Uh, supposedly his favorite prohibition cocktail was called the south side which is Mm -hmm. named after his crew in chicago they had south side and north side and that consists of two ounces of gin to one lime with syrup and mint leaves. So not too far from what I'm having now, but just with more sugar and mint. So obviously we, we've covered a lot of Prohibition cocktails over the episodes, uh, like Corpse Reviver or French 75, you may remember as throwbacks. But we also found out that most of them either predated Prohibition, like old-fashioned which people think of as a prohibition drink but it was specifically referring to the old-fashioned way of serving whiskey in the 19th century or indeed the godfather which didn't come from these early days of mafia but from a time when the godfather film was being made in the 1970s which was when italian spirits were becoming more popular in the us and the cast would combine amaretto and whiskey so we've not gone down the kind of here's all the cocktails from prohibition because we've told them in lots of other stories and often they didn't actually come from that decade as, as you said it was mostly just putting lots of sugar into bad alcohol yeah um rum row uh i want to tell you about rum row was basically a floating liquor store uh that um al capone and and, and others enjoyed it was when boats would come into international water from uh off in the west indies etc and set up near long island um you know and people could go there and they could obtain it without breaking the law because it was international waters capone himself favored the french canadian island uh, though of uh, saint pierre and Miquelon. and in fact his business his trade with them made them so rich that they considered him a hero and they built houses from the champagne wooden cases (laughs) they basically built a whole Champagne wooden village out of uh, of the profits he brought them. The things with um, Al Capone and the gangsters there really kind of came to a head uh, with the Chicago Beer Wars, which, as I mentioned, was between North and South. And it was the Valentine's Day Massacre that tipped the sentiment uh, towards anti-prohibition. But when it... (laughs) It's funny, when you describe it now, you're like, okay, that's bad, but it's not that big. So what happened was, you know, one side sort of said to the other, come and talk to us, you know, in this warehouse, we're going to make a deal or, you know, discuss peace or trade or whatever, and then they gunned them down. So seven gangsters were killed by guns, um, you know, under kind of the false pretenses of some sort of trade deal or whatever, but that's it. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that is
1: the valentine's day massacre It's seven criminals getting gunned down by seven other criminals but it was front page news people were outraged um and this is 1929 but you just think that wouldn't that probably wouldn't even make news now
0: <laughs> there's so that's, that's many other more like, horrific yeah. massacres yeah
1: oh, but yeah but people kind of really um became outraged by that and it it it, it swung it towards um, anti-prohibition for a lot of people i must mention um because this this is gonna be funny uh so you know <laughs> uh so so my mum has an alexa right but you know when you're talking about it you sometimes accidentally set it off
0: yeah
1: you'd be like oh alexa's a blubber blah, blah, or alexa's not working because blah 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 and then and then she chimes in mm-hmm. so i said oh give it another name so when you need to talk to me about it He won't set it off while we're talking over it, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So she calls it Al Capone. (laughs) (laughs) And I just had this image of it, kind of, I know it doesn't matter that way, but like getting confused (laughs) with this conversation while she's listening to it over Alexa. Uh, uh, Okay, more people I want to tell you (laughs) about as we're heading towards now, sort of the end of prohibition, this anti-prohibition sentiment. Pauline uh, Sabin was part of the women's movement, um, that came towards anti-prohibition, um, because it hadn't improved anything, and she thought it had made it worse. From a feminist perspective, this decade is really interesting because they, you know, you've mentioned a few things like they could drink in public, um, where they couldn't before. They got the right to vote. They had more economic control than before legally. Um, because they could drink and mix, they were having more sex. There was a lot of kind of interesting shifts in feminists uh, around this time. But yeah, she was one of the ones who sort of kick-started the women's movement that had been so instrumental in bringing in Prohibition, going, actually, we got it wrong. This doesn't work. Let's not do it anymore.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: But I think one of the biggest things that was the nail in the coffin was the 1929 stock market crash because that led to one in five uh, jobs being lost. Um, And, you know, when I said at the beginning of the decade, how many people lost their jobs because of prohibition, the income tax that had to come in to replace uh, the taxes that were being lost from this enormous industry, and now there was no income coming in for people as well. So they needed to do something. Uh, Hoover, uh, President Hoover, who was in at the time as well, was really unpopular. And Roosevelt, who became his successor, basically got in on the promise of repealing uh, prohibition. That was his big ticket. He said, vote for me, I will get rid of it. Um, and that was 1933. He immediately released the beer act to allow beer to kind of come in and be produced and sold while the rest of it was being sorted so they didn't even want to wait a few months for prohibition to be properly repealed they were like we are working on that but in the meantime please everyone get on the beer
0: get, have a beer, yeah
1: yeah <laughs> and uh they they certainly did although there were some kind of holdout states so for example i think the last one was 1966 that was mississippi mm-hmm. which you know would suck to be a miss mississippi in the 60s Um, obviously there's, um, there's some legacy things uh, that I'll just finish off on. And then I've got a section on kind of what was happening in the UK that I promised. Uh, I think one thing is that the gangsters who came about, you know, created business structures based on the illegal sale of alcohol, just switched to drugs. You know, once, once people could get alcohol anymore, it's like, well, let's just switch to drugs then. And, you know, that kind of continues really. The other thing is that, you know, you said people were putting sweet mixes and stuff into alcohol to the taste because mm. it was so bad during this period. It's theorised that that's possibly why um, Americans got used to sweeter foods and drink at this time to compensate for lack of alcohol, which led, led, has led to their ongoing problems with high calibrific food. You know, mm. you notice it when you're in the US that sweet things are much sweeter and they put corn syrup in lots of stuff and mm-hmm. people suggest that it was that decade that sort of did it. Um, to the the food production lines of putting more sugar in by default. So lots of not good things to happen. Did you did you have anything else before I kind of hop over the waters to Britain?
0: Wow. it's funny you say hopping over the waters. I do. Mm-hmm. Um there's are now there's an argument that Prohibition created the cruise ship industry.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. so more bad news. <laughs> <laughs> um
0: yeah, before 1920, cruises only really happened when you needed to get somewhere, like from New York to London. Uh, you'd jump on a cruise and you travel. So it was very much just traveling A to B. It was never really for leisure. or You certainly wouldn't holiday on a cruise. Um, but people quickly realized that during Prohibition, you could drink and sell alcohol outside of the territorial limit. Uh, so essentially, if you got on a cruise ship, As soon as it's out of that said territorial limit, which can be, I think it started off at six miles and then it became 12 miles. Um, But so long as you're out of that limit, you can drink. So yeah, jump on a ship, get out of that territory, bars open. (laughs) Um, And that then really started essentially what they now coined the term booze cruise in America. I know it's slightly different here in the UK when you use the term booze cruise, but in the US, that's what they dubbed a booze cruise. Um, Sometimes the ships had no actual destination. It would just circle the coast. (laughs) As long as they were on international waters, they could drink freely. Um, So yeah, the booze cruise was born during Prohibition. Uh, Unfortunately, it did start to affect domestic American ships. Uh, but they tried to entice customers by advertising that they, too, had the same comfort and services as the foreign liners. Um, so, yeah, it is argued that uh, Prohibition launched the cruise industry, because prior to that, people really didn't get on a cruise ship for enjoyment and japes. Mm. And then that's all they were doing during Prohibition, was just literally circling the territory <laughs> <laughs> limit <laughs> and getting shit faced, yeah. and then going back.
1: <laughs> yeah. magic Mm. of international waters (laughs) all right well let's let's cruise on over to britain then um Mm. as i said you know temperance was a thing there um Mm -hmm. and specifically actually there were temperance bars that came in the late 19th century as Mm -hmm. a way to provide a specific alternative um rather than just banning you know kind of go oh here's some bars you can come to where there's no alcohol which i don't think is necessarily a bad thing they um sold herbal drinks ranging from ginger beer and sarsaparilla to things like dandelion and burdock soda. The most popular chain was called Mr. Fitzpatrick's. Um, they didn't last forever though. Uh, they, they did close down, all except for one, which still exists. And it's in Rotonstall in Lancashire. It's still called Mr. Fitzpatrick's, but you can go there, it still exists. It's very quaint. Um, in fact, they They've got a website, you can buy lovely cordials from them. Uh, for example, I saw one called Blood Tonic, and I was like, wow, that doesn't sound very temperance, what's in that? Uh, and it's um, uh, made with raspberries, infused with nettles and rose hips uh, to create their cordial. So it's often referred to as Posh Vimto, <laughs> but we think it's a little more That's special. Funny. The funny thing is, they say, you know, add it to still sparkling water or use it as a mixer for a cocktail base, so I just think it's kind of ironic that the, temperance, last, yeah. the last temperance place left is essentially making cocktail mixers. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's let's talk about the actual prohibition bit then, because obviously U.S. went prohibition in 1920. Why didn't it take off in Britain? Honestly, when I was looking into this, I've never felt more proud to be British. Uh, <laughs> So, in response to prohibition kicking off in the US, the British brewing industry really stepped up its campaigns against the temperance movement, and argued against the introductions of restrictions on any sale of alcohol in the UK, including crucially through local options, um, which would be votes on prohibition to be held by local councils. If you remember, I said the 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 League of Anti Saloons or the Anti Saloon League, um. Mm-hmm had successfully managed to kind of target smaller areas first before it went for national prohibition and i think they looked at that and they went we want to make sure that people don't just start doing it locally so that it takes off um so they created all these leaflets um that they kind of produced through the the early 1920s and there's there's archives. I'm going to read some of these out in a bit. I, I found them in the Warwick University archives, uh, They're in, the, but they're part of the British Beer and Pub Association um, archives, I think. I'll put the link onto our show notes later, because they are brilliant. Um, the key themes they go after are anti-Americanism. <laughs> uh, <laughs> those foreigners coming over here interfering with British liberties. Um, <laughs> appealing to the working class, uh, including the new women voters. Fears of unemployment, increased taxation, the effects of alcohol on health and concerns over criminality and immorality caused by prohibition. Essentially it's very clever because they looked at exactly what was going on in the US. Mm-hmm. They didn't just go, we have a right to drink. They didn't they weren't like, you know, it's it should be liberty and everything. They went, no, look at how badly this has gone over there. We don't want that. Um <laughs> Just before I get on to reading out some extracts from these posters. Remember Carrie Nation? Yes. Ha- Hatchet uh, Granny Kitty
0: Jason what's his name? Frost. Touch a Frost man. David Jason.
1: David <laughs> Jason, yeah. Well, um, much like some of the people you mentioned, she also thought I can go into Vaudeville and make some money off being associated with uh, you know, with all the prohibition stuff. So she says she was going into Vaudeville. In reality, it was just a lot of proselytizing in theatres. So she went around the US, kind of giving lectures in morality and prohibition, and selling merch (laughs) (laughs) of her, basically, (laughs) like all all the prohibition sort of stuff. She obviously thought she was great and um, came to London to do a show um, on all about this in nineteen o nine. She got egged off stage. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. They were like, absolutely not hatching, Granny. Off you go, egg in the face. She, <laughs> she never returned. <laughs> oh, I bet so, she was
0: so excited as well.
1: Yeah, she really thought she really thought God <laughs> wanted her to uh, come to London and tell people not to drink, and they had other ideas. <laughs> um, so I've got yeah. Here's some. I'll read some extracts from leaflets. Uh, This one says, this is what local veto will not do. It will not touch the rich man's cellar or prevent him replenishing it. It will not reduce drunkenness or promote temperance. It will not prevent the private consumption of liquor and it will not prevent thirst. (laughs) This is what local veto will do. It will enable a certain majority of those voting not those on the register to bang bolt and bar the doors of every public house and club in a given parish or ward of a borough it will in such cases close up every bar every smoke room every place where working men have for generations met have been honestly entertained and held their meetings it will prevent the steady sober man getting a glass of ale by fair and square means it will be an incitement to illicit drinking even recently owing to high taxation the consumption of methylated spirit has greatly increased and is gravely disturbing the authorities It will prevent the workmen getting beer from the public house for consumption with his meals at home. It will deprive pedestrians, cyclists and tourists of rational refreshment when passing through a dry parish. It will enable teetotas to join hands with others who have no need for a public house to deprive the working man of his rights. It will create a licensing position as variegated as a patchwork quilt. One ward will be dry and the adjoining one wet. And it will lead to people in dry areas organising parties into the contiguous wet districts. Are you convinced?
0: What? I'm, I'm wet.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. I think they've laid out the arguments very well. Um, yeah. I think it's um, I think it's great. And lest you think it should just be kind of all aimed at the working man, as I said, they talk to women as well. There's a lot, lots of posters and articles which are women writing to other women about this. There's a great one uh, I've got here. It says a woman to women. And there's a cartoon. It's a brilliant cartoon of a, um, a a sort of annoying, condescending looking man in a trench coat and hat um, standing over a table and wagging his finger at this woman who's leaning back in a rocking chair with a, a bottle and glass of ale on the table next to her. And it mm. says, the lecturer, I'll do your thinking for you, Mrs. And it says, the working woman, I don't think you will, Mr. <laughs> <laughs> She's looking so pleased with herself.
0: She got a hatchet as well.
1: <laughs> she has not got a hatchet. It. <laughs> it just says the way in which some men lecture our sex amuses me. They seem to imagine we cannot think for ourselves, that we are weak back boneless creatures, that we have no mind or willpower. One thing that makes me angry is to read the speeches of some of these deluded men about what they call drink. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's so good. Um oh, what else does it say? Women and children would suffer cruelly. Chaos would reign and many deep thinkers firmly believe it would cause a bloody revolution. Um, We women should organise ourselves to resist prohibition or local veto. Uh, Temperance? Yes, certainly. Compulsory teetotalism? No, certainly not.
0: (laughs) Absolutely fucking not.
1: Absolutely not. (laughs) And there's another one of... um, uh, uh, There's a cartoon of a woman doing laundry... And the caption says, wet but dry work. <laughs> the article says, you are not drones in the hive. You work in the home or in the factory or in the laundry. Some of you in the fields. The housewife is at it from early morning until late at night, particularly when there are children. After a day's hard labor, you often feel exhausted. Up to now, you were found comfort and supported a glass of stout or beer with your supper or even with your midday meal after a morning at the washtub.
0: I don't think I've ever spent a morning at the washtub.
1: <laughs> Clearly. I've um, always had a
0: stout for lunch, though. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Um, here's another post that says, Two working men and women. The Anti-Saloon League of the United States, which has now changed its name to the World League Against Alcoholism, <laughs> which, by the way, is... <laughs> Now I don't want to speak about any, any specific organizations but it's so typical of a US organization to rename itself the World League Against <laughs> uh, Anyway um sent a number of skilled organizers and specious speakers to our country to help the misnamed temperance associations too and this is the biggest font rob you of your beer <laughs> <laughs> So we've seen the appeals to the working man and we've seen the appeals to the working woman. Now this is the anti-American stuff. The League is supported by millionaires and has enormous funds. Its hirelings are paid a minimum of £60 a month and expenses. Will you allow these aliens to dictate to you? (laughs) Interfere with your liberties. Close your public houses. Hustle you into compulsory teetotalism. What right have they to meddle with our affairs? What would Yankees say if we sent over a swarm of paid men to lecture them on their habits and interfere with their domestic concerns? Show these fussy zealots that you resent their impertinent intrusion. (laughs) Write to your MP and tell him they ought to be deported.
0: (laughs) I love that even back then the call to action is, write to your MP.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And then the final one I read out because I, I could do these all day. They're absolutely brilliant. Um, it's <clears throat> Why I Do Not Support the CETS, Outspoken Sermon by the Vicar of St. James West Croydon. <laughs> it says, I'm convinced that prohibition is an altogether wrong and injurious and intemperate thing, and I cannot support any so called temperance society which does not take its stand definitely against it. Local option is a form of tyranny. The Reverend Wilkinson, Vicar of St. James.
0: <laughs> kind regards. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh so there we go i'll put, I'll put a link to the archive on the uh show notes, but they're um they're pretty great so that in a nutshell that is why Britain never had prohibition it's because of Stubborn very active vigorous campaigning <laughs> by brewers associations. Um, to keep it afloat but also they were completely right and the arguments they used were based on what they'd seen go wrong in the US it wasn't just because we should be allowed to sell beer so um, mm. I think don't don't take for granted that um, restrictive laws will not come in due to kind of common sense but uh, vigorous campaigns by people who drink <laughs> <laughs> anything else before we sign off
0: no I need another drink <laughs> well,
1: quite. Our glasses have run dry, but not our belief system, which means it's time to get wet, baby. <laughs> Cheers. So wet. Cheers, everybody.
0: <laughs> right head, wherever
1: I may roll, or, or sea or
0: you can always hear me sing in the song. show me the way to go home.